you're listening to Make the Sacred Shift, a fresh and powerful conversation on how to bring the sacred right into the heart of the messy and vulnerable human challenges we all go through in relationships, spirituality, health, and business, so we can shift into our full soul embodiment and quite literally change our worlds. I'm your host, Medicine Woman for the Soul, and guide for visionaries, luminaries, and entrepreneurs, Joanna and Tarazim. Join me for engaging soul conversations as I connect with the top voices on the sacred in relationships, spirituality, health, and business, on what it's really like to live from the sacred in the ways our soul calls out for most, and to shift our lives like lightning as we learn how to do it. It's time to make the sacred shift everywhere that most asks for it. The call for it is now, and here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Make the Sacred Shift podcast. I am your host, Joanna Intara, and I am super excited today to welcome and introduce you to Juju Hook. Juju Hook is a brand strategist, an author, and a coach, and a speaker dedicated to fostering self-love, confidence, and courageous action in middle-aged women. She has recently released her first book, Hot Flashes, Carpools, and Dirty Martinis. What a potent trio. The quintessential guide for turning midlife into prime time and provides advice and commentary for primetime women at jujuhook.com and on branding at strategicjuju.com. Happy New Year and welcome to you, Juju. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Wow, I just love this trio of how, how, how sequentially they all go together. Hot flashes, carpools, and dirty martinis. How did that get downloaded to you as the title of your book? You know, I had sort of a transformational moment, uh, transformational morning in 2015 as the menopausal uh, career mom of a teenager. And, you know, menopause and puberty go together about like beer and ice cream. And it just was a morning that was a relatively typical morning for a middle-aged mom. We had a flood and had a horrible fight with my teenager who, you know, decided he was going to run away in a rainstorm. And it just was a mess. And um, it was the morning that I came to realize that everything I believed about middle age was a lie that I was really operating under a lot of stories around my viability and my potential and my relevance to the world. And it just really changed me and, and sent me on a journey. At that point, I, I decided to close down an advertising agency that I had successfully run for many years um, and create an online presence and uh, do something that was more motivational in the world. And the title came to me as I was looking for ways to relate to women who might enjoy the lessons that I had picked up in my life. I see. I see. And so is it, is it right for me to assume that the hot flash would come before the carpool run? So you would have to do the carpool run <laughs> while or after you were having the hot flash and then you got home and it was like dirty martini time. Yeah, I think the hot flashes just came when they started coming. They never stopped coming. What was crazy for me was that I was having hot flashes at the same time that I was still carpooling. And I know that that is the case for so many women. 
Um, you know, I, I had menopause came early for me for a number of different reasons. Um, but it was shocking. It was a shocking transition for me. And like so many women, my initial thought, my initial response to it was that it was a time of loss. And I think the beautiful truth that I missed out on was the fact that it's the biggest transition that we go through since puberty. And it comes with so many amazing gifts that once I found them, I needed to share them. And so it was just so ironic that it was all happening at the same time. And I think the dirty martinis were what I leaned into for a while um, in order to deal with all the other stuff. And, and there were lessons learned there as well, for sure. Definitely, definitely. Well, definitely, this is not the first time that I've heard some order of these three. And really, you know, the, I so love the message that you're bringing, which is it's, it's really not the end. It is the beginning in some ways, a lot of ways, actually. Um, going through yes. yourself and having lots of, you know, peers and allies and friends who are all navigating this passageway, even like um, a few weeks ago, is uh, commenting on a post on Facebook um, about this midlife passage. Yes. And um, how even archetypally there is so much missing for women. It's known as like, um, I think the, the unions call it, you know, there's the, there's the maiden period, you know, and yes. then the mother period, and then there's the crone. And um, what I have heard and introduced and take a stand for and I'm sure you know this as well is there there's that that gap in between the mother and the crone which some people have called the matriarch yeah it's you know it, it's so interesting that we all invested so much time and energy in a plan for the first half of our life so from the you know from the time I was six it was this is what I'm going to be this is how it's going to look I'm going to I'm going to be educated and then I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids and this is what my career is going to look like and this is what I'm going to study in college and all of these things. And there comes a point in our lives when we fulfill the lion's share of that plan in some way or another. Yes. What's not built into our reality is how to plan the second half or the fact that a, a, a plan for the second half is even viable. And when you really break down the average life expectancy for women in America, it's 86 years old. And I see women start to wind down in their late 40s. And the question I ask is, what are you going to do with the second half of your life that's as fulfilling as the first half? And it's amazing how many women I meet who've never really considered that. Wow. And it's, it's, um, it's just not part of what's built into our psyche. And, you know, women in middle age are more intuitive and more sightful and more experienced and wiser and more ready than they've ever been in life. And one of the things I always say is if you have a really serious problem, I mean, if you really needed to solve a problem and you needed somebody to think on their feet and juggle the issues and give you great advice and not crack, it'd be a middle-aged woman. That's who you'd call. And what I found when I was leading um, brands online and having people come through my online branding course is that the middle-aged women were the most viable candidates in the course, but they discounted themselves. They discounted themselves based on their age. They excused themselves. And wow. I realized at that point that it wasn't just me, that it was, it was a, it really a conversation that needed to be had. So what do you see as for yourself and your own message and the work you're doing in the world? 
what aspect of this that's the sacred what what lights you up the most what's the sacred aspect of all of this in in this body of work that you're sharing offering teaching supporting encouraging all of that i think it has to do with purpose and the idea that as young women, we often perceive our purpose in relation to the other people in our lives. So we consider our roles. We consider who we are as a daughter, as a student, as a a spouse, as a teacher, as an employee. And in that, we often lose sight of our essence. There's not so much really focus or value given to our essence. And at a point in your life when that mothering stage comes to an end, whether or not you've actually mothered children, women mother all kinds of things, projects and pets and relationships and businesses and all kinds of stuff. When When that mothering stage comes to an end, both figuratively and literally, the focus on essence or on purpose if it's missed, then the second half of life becomes an exercise in, in time ticking by. And for me, once I realized the level of my viability at this age, once I realized I was more now than I've ever been, rather than less because I'd lived more, my purpose kicked in. And as I started to share it with women, I realized that that sort of level of permission to, to, to lean in to the essence and the purpose and, and really go out and get what we want and, and what we seek, um, it just changed everything in my life. And how, you know, there, I can imagine there are a lot of women listening who are around our age group or are approaching it or navigating their way through who are wondering, how do you know when you've reached that um, you know, that dark point where that purpose really, really originates. Everybody has a story. So I'm wondering if you can share the nitty gritty, just so one that people don't feel alone or that people think maybe they're crazy or right. We all, that's that it it feels like the end, you know, these are the three um, uh, ego based fears that I think we can all have when all the other uh, drama, trauma kind of clears away that we all must reconcile with. And so what I'm wondering is for you, how did that originate? What was the darkest point? And how did you make your unique medicine from that? So how it originated with me was the moment that I, I, I I'm not sure this is how it originated, but this is the moment I came to see it. Um, the very morning that we were discussing, you know, rainstorm, kid running away, hangover, just <laughs> mess, hot mess. Um, I realized that I had this set of beliefs about my viability in the world. I had just lost a very big client or gotten a phone call that I was about to lose a very big client. And it was a client that supported a seven-person creative team. We'd had them for a long time. I was furious at myself that I hadn't gone out and pitched business sooner, that I didn't anticipate it. But I also knew in that moment that I didn't want to go pitch. And the feeling that I had around it was that a younger agency was going to be more viable, that I was going to get into a room um, with a younger agency or more specifically with a younger woman who was going to be perceived as more relevant than me. And the wave of insecurity that came over me was just absolutely shocking. And with it came all of these beliefs or stories that I held around my worth in the world and, and 
ultimately they amounted to because I've lived more, I'm worth less. And in that moment, on that day, I also had a, a call with my son's school principal. I eventually got him to school after he ran away in the rainstorm and was, you know, approached by the principal who said, listen, my son was in his, you know, he was going through puberty at the time. And the principal said, listen, um, it seems like Christian's having trouble at home. It seems like there's, he's under a lot of pressure, you know, what's going on? And I kind of let out this litany of my thoughts about him, which is he's not studying, he's not living up to his potential. What if he goes through life, you know, just living out a life of mediocrity? What if he never tries? What if he never pushes things to the edge? And, you know, thankfully and gracefully, this principal said to me, I don't think this is about him. I think this is about you. Wow, what was that I, like I, when she said that? Yeah, and I think maybe it's time for you to go do something that you're terrified of. And it really put me wow. in a space to recognize the things that I had put off in my life because I believed that I wasn't enough or uh, that nobody wanted to hear what I had to say, all different kinds of things. And the entire shadow career I had set up around that that I'd always wanted to be a writer. I'd always wanted to speak from stage. I'd always wanted to share my message. And in, in living out this small version of that, what I'd done instead was write other people's messages for my whole life to a great profit, um, but it wasn't my stuff. And so it was just a moment of awakening for me. And what came with it was the idea that the reason I didn't do all those things is because I wasn't who I am now. And at this point, at this time, I was 48 at the time, it, it was my time. It was it now was my time. And that if I didn't do it, I would never forgive myself. And so I spent about two years talking to middle-aged women. And what I realized, <clears throat> realized was that they all, in some form or another, bought into that lie. I'm, I'm, I'm worth less because I've lived more. And it manifests itself in different ways for some women um, it has to do with our, our bodies and the way we present ourselves in the world and losing my sexy and feeling invisible. Uh, for some women, it has to do with relevance and, you know, is the world passing me by? Am I still current? Am I still relevant? Am I still valuable? With some women, it has to do with the feeling that time's running out, mm -hmm. that time's running out and I've never done what I want to do and there's no time left and my ship has sailed. Uh, with some women, it has to do with the concept of selflessness that I've been selfless my entire life and put everyone else first. And now there's sort of a hole in my life and I don't know what to fill it with. Sometimes it comes with a call to do greater things or to contribute on a different level, but we don't know how to answer the call. Yeah. It's just, it's a shift. And the, the challenge with the shift and, you know, an answer to am I going crazy is that's the way women perceive it a, a lot of times. So I'm going nuts. I'm losing. I'm having a crisis. And that's, that's what we've been told. We've been yeah, told it's not a too. crisis. It's a beautiful opening. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful opening for a magnificent transition. And if we can own it and really lean into it, the, the, the beautiful truth really is that that second half of life, we're set up to to crush it, to slay it, if, if we can lean into it. That's really the key. And so how did you, in that dark point, when the, when the principal really was very direct with you, which was, that's pretty courageous. And <laughs> yeah, it was. The ability to really hear her and receive what she was saying and, you know, take that medicine. Like, 
what happened immediately for you after that that ended up being the gift? Like, how did you work with that? Like, take us on the very inside, because I can guarantee you right now there are people listening. Immediately, so, I was ashamed. You felt I was ashamed. Embarrassed. I felt ashamed that I put my stuff on my kid. That was my immediate thought, right? Mm-hmm. This is my stuff, and I put it on somebody else. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was pouring down rain that day. It was just a very heavy day. Everything felt very heavy. And once I got past the embarrassment and I knew that the principal wasn't trying to embarrass me, but rather to free me, um, I, I just knew that the path that I was presently on wasn't going to serve me. Ever, the dominoes just fell into place. I realized I don't, I don't ever want to walk into a boardroom again and stuff dollar bills into the pockets of big corporations. I don't want it. And the fear that I had about walking in and competing against a younger agency really wasn't about that. I used that. I used that fear to keep me from doing what I wanted to do, which was to show myself completely. So it was, it literally was almost like dominoes falling. And and I think over the course of that day and a couple of other days, you know, that followed, I just made a commitment to show up for myself that I, I, I think I realized I'd never given myself a chance. I think what you just said there is so key. It reminds me of a quote by Pema Children, who says the Tibetan Buddhist nun who wrote a lot of mainstream books. She says on, on, um, on discernment and witnessing, she says that the two primary witnesses, meaning self and other, ultimately you're the only one that really knows when you're using something to open and only you know when you're using something to close. And I love how you just have the wholeness there to be like, okay, I'm going to really call myself on what my excuse is. And I don't want to energize that excuse, even though I could, and there's relevant reason to buy into that. This is really about me owning how enough and how really unique and amazing my particular gift is and putting all of my uh, life force, I call it love force, yes, and energy and delighting that up fully because the reality is you have lived more life than you have left. And yes. the knowledge that we're mortal beings kicks in more than ever. Mm-hmm. The, beautiful, the beautiful thing though about the living more life than I have left is that I have shortcuts to so many things now because I've been there. So it doesn't yes. take me as much time now as it took me the first time, right? I'm on a, I'm on a different track now. Yes. And the, the, the very essence of that excuse be, ultimately became my work. So my book talks about the six lies that we tell ourselves that keep us from living in prime time. And the lies are insidious. And some of them were given, literally given to us by society. Sure. Some of them are things we, that, that it, it literally is the resistance in the universe, right? Just a reason not to show up. Yes. As long as we keep believing them, we'll never have what we want. So keeping along with that, the lies and all the medicine and gifts that you really extracted from this initiation, this descent, dark night of the soul, what would you say are some of the biggest gifts and how, how can, give us an example of that, that we can use one of the gifts. So I think that maybe the biggest gift that I got was the idea, was the truth that my extenuating circumstances aren't relevant. It's, it's very easy to wake up on any given day and have a set of extenuating circumstances that give us a pass on what it is we want to do that day. Maybe it's 
Maybe it's the feelings that we have. Maybe it's a situation that our kids are in. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's lack of motivation. Maybe it's where we live or a situation or, you know, uh, uh, anything that we feel we're experiencing that we use to keep ourselves stuck. Right. So given that, like, take us through how you personally, inside your own brain, your own self, your own soul, how did you actually get from point A to point B? Like, give us an example of how you worked with yourself so that people can see how they can do it for themselves, for example, you know, like the self-talk. Um, so several things. First of all, I entirely changed my relationship to my self-talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, to the best of my ability, allow it to play like a Beatles song going on in my head. There is just literally no truth to it. I, I believe that my thoughts happen the same way lightning strikes or a door slams, and there's really no truth in it at all. My thoughts are not reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that sounds very esoteric, at the same time, it's what I needed to know yes. uh, in order to move forward. I also know that my thoughts do generate my feelings and that my feelings are not facts. So, and, would you, so would you say to yourself, so the conditioned momentum of thoughts would arise and then you would notice that that happened and they were generating feelings that were undesirable. And then you would say to yourself something like, these are not truth. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen? What I would say to myself is, I am not these thoughts. I am not these thoughts are not me. They're happening to me. And it just became a practice, a practice of unwinding and unwinding and unwinding. Along with that, I think I needed validation in the world. You know, that remaining in my head all the time is a danger for me. And I needed validation in the world that women who had the exact same extenuating circumstances that I did Mm -hmm. were out doing exactly what they Yeah. So uh, to get out of that heady experience and see there's a people there, there are women with a lot less money than me, a lot less education with me, a lot bigger problems than me going out and doing what they want to do. So the, the extenuating circumstances that I used to prevent me from whatever it was that I wanted were a lie. They, it was a lie that I couldn't do it. Um, and I just had to get very much in touch with that. I think the other thing that really changed me is the belief, the understanding that no one's coming to save me. There isn't anyone else that's going to do this for me. And that given the degree of potential that I have and the pull that I have to contribute, if I don't do it, I won't forgive myself. I, I also think... That is so potent. I just want to dignify how important that is. Yeah, I can't forgive myself for not showing up. But I think the most useful part of it for me was what I call the point of no return. So I sort of dove into this new career. I dove into this new chapter of my life. And my really my goal initially was to get as quickly as I could to a point where I wouldn't turn back, where I had enough invested mm-hmm. and enough belief and enough desire for what it was that I wanted that I couldn't quit. 
I couldn't turn back. I couldn't allow myself to do it. And once I hit that point, I'm not, and I'm not going to say I don't have hard days and I'm not going to say I don't have pity parties because I, I throw a glorious pity party, Mm -hmm. but I'm at the point now where I can't quit. I'm in it and I got to, I got to move forward. And that's a gift. And that's the, the turning around of the Titanic, shall we say, you know, when you began to really confront your mind and its biases and all of yes. that simulation of really it's just conditioned thought, whether it was, you know, your lifetime or passed down to you from who knows where, what, how, and why. Yes. That practice of continuously attending to what is really true and what do you truly want to create? That is the practice that really helped turn things around for you. And so if somebody's listening right now who's in the midst of it, in anything, finding, if you're finding yourself in the midst of what Juju is saying, Juju, what, what, what's one step they can take right now? Like one courageous, badass, straightforward, no BS step they can take. So the most courageous thing that I encourage women to do is to ask yourself what you really want. We're not conditioned to have what we want. We're not conditioned to put our wants and needs first. We're not even conditioned to entertain the question. Um, and when I ask women, especially middle-aged women, well, what do you want? Well, what would make you happy? Well, what would turn you on? It's amazing how long it takes to come to that answer. Um, and Louise Hay style, not only do I encourage women to ask what they want, but I encourage them to look in the mirror and ask. To say, you know, hey, beautiful, good morning, gorgeous, right? The universe has your back. What do you want? And it's so important because I think women are so used to not even asking themselves or thinking they can ask what they want. You know, like I often ask women because my work is about self-fulfillment and one of the beginning processes of that is really to embody the fullness of your soul desires. Like what does your soul truly desire? Yes, yes. In, In love, in work, in sex in intimacy, the legacy you want to leave, what do you desire? And the beautiful thing about that is that we don't want things that are not ours to have. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to win the Nobel Peace Prize in, <laughs> the Nobel Prize in physics because that's not mine to have. Um, but what I did want to do was inspire middle-aged women with my story and fight against ageism because that is mine to have. Mm-hmm. So I think once we recognize that Focusing on what we want rather than why we don't have it or why we can't have it is very, very freeing. And so often I'll ask women, well, what do you want? And they'll say, well, you know, if blah, blah, blah didn't exist, if I had more money, I would want this. Well, the reason why you don't have it is irrelevant to the fact that you want it. Yes. I wanted to write a book. I wanted to get on stage. I wanted more than anything for one woman to hand the book to the next woman and say, you got to read this because it'll change your life. That's what I wanted. All of the reasons why I hadn't done it were irrelevant to the desire. Mm-hmm. And, and not fulfilling that desire was much worse than moving forward and, and in, in that safe certainty, right? We, we, our brain likes certainty. Our soul doesn't like it so much, but our brain mm-hmm. likes to be certain. And sitting where we are, whether or not we like it, no matter what degree of misery we have, is yeah. certain. We know what we're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really asking yourself what you want is the beginning of all of it. Definitely. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. And, um, 
I am really right with you in my own way of championing the not only right for women to have what they desire, but for it to be fully alive in the heart and in the body. Yes. Uh, ground up approach so that the mind can sort of be a servant instead of uh, Instead of a, mas a master, which yes. is the other thing. Um, do you have any? Um, do you have any parting words for people today? Like, if there's one thing you would want people to remember about today, what would I, you like to tell them? I would encourage women, especially women who are concerned about aging or the idea that they may be worth less as they live more, to stop using the phrase "I am." Um, unless that phrase is followed by the word everything, it's irrelevant. So um, replacing it with lately I've been in the habit of mm -hmm. will allow you to release the things that you think that you are that are holding you back from what you desire. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a subtle change in, in words, yeah. but it works. It, it helps us to lean into possibility. I really like that. It's like really shifting from believing a fixed identity that's not true. Yes. Into honoring and dignifying parts and pieces of ourselves. Yes, and, and that behaviors are changeable. We can alter our behavior at any time that we choose. Amen and hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And where can people find you these days if they want to get in touch with you? Jujuhook.com um, is a summary of all my work around midlife women. There's a seven-day revolution there that women can join. You can also get my book there. Um, for folks who are interested in the branding side of things, I write a branding blog and have a course at strategicjuju.com. So either one of those places you can find me. Well, thank you so much for today. It's been an honor to share some sacred time. My absolute pleasure. I hope that if you're listening and enjoying this, that you'll share this with your friends and any woman that you know who could really benefit by the um, midlife medicine that's been shared here. <laughs> thank you. Know. And thank you so much for joining us. And Happy New Year to everybody. I hope it's going to be an amazing year for you all and to you as well, Juju. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on the Make the Sacred Shift podcast. If today's episode shifted your world or gave value to you, I'd love for you to leave us a quick review on iTunes. Make the Sacred Shift is a collective conversation of bringing all our divine qualities with fresh embodiment right into the human places we need it the most. If you're ready to break free from your current challenges and rise boldly into your full soul embodiment, visit me at makethesacredshift.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching group programs sacred shift products and courses all curated to empower you to shift till you're all the way home until next time you're sacred your challenges and vulnerability are sacred and you're capable of shifting into love healing miracles and complete fulfillment embody your sacred self and shift into the soul lit life you're meant to lead